may keep your Bibles open to Mark 15. Approximately 1,980 years ago to this very day, a Jewish man named Jesus of Nazareth was falsely accused of blasphemy against God and treason against Caesar from Rome. He was illegally convicted by the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin. He was handed over to the Roman governor called Pilate. He was brutally beaten by professional Roman soldiers to within an inch of his life. He was then mocked and humiliated by both Jews and Gentiles alike. And finally, he was executed by means of crucifixion on a hill outside of Jerusalem. After six hours of suffering on the cross, he finally stopped breathing and his life expired. And his dead body continued to dangle from the cross for a number of hours as a spectacle for everyone to see as they walked by. And then, a few hours later, he was taken down from the cross, wrapped in linen and put in a tomb by a man who revered and respected him. These are the facts of history. This is what happened. The veracity, the, the, the truthfulness of the crucifixion of Jesus is affirmed by the Bible. It is affirmed by historical evidence. It is affirmed by first and second century historians and a flood of eyewitnesses who then went out to the Holy Roman Empire and gave witness to the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. There is no reason to try and deny the crucifixion because ever since its occurrence, it has stood as the most important and most significant event in human history. But though we affirm the facts of the crucifixion tonight, the suffering and the death of Jesus of Nazareth, and though we cherish the cross to a certain degree, I'm not so sure that we as Christians grasp the overall significance grasp the overall weight, grasp the overall accomplishment of Jesus at the cross. So tonight what I want to do is answer two questions. I want to answer two questions, and that is, what did Jesus endure and why did he endure it? What did Jesus endure at the cross at Calvary and then why did he endure it? We'll be looking at Mark chapter 15 verses 1 through 34. So as you begin to look at verse 1 through 5, the first thing that we see that Jesus endured is false accusation. About 5.30 a.m. on Friday morning, the Sanhedrin meets together and they officially make the decision to deliver Jesus over to the Romans to be executed. They had already made the decision at night, but according to Jewish custom, they could not make that decision at night. They had to wait till daybreak. So as soon as they could, they make the decision. And so they bind Jesus up as if he is a dangerous criminal and usher him over to Pilate. In verse 2, Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? Because that's one of the three things, the three accusations that the Jews had made about Jesus to Pilate. Luke chapter 23, verse 2 says, They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a king. Well, the first two were just basically outright lies, and the last two was basically an innuendo, and they turned 
Christ claimed to be Messiah and made it look like to Pilate that he was trying to be the king as if the king of Rome. And so um, the one thing that was immediately punishable by death in Rome and in the Roman Empire was treason against Caesar. And they were trying to make it look as if this was the case in Jesus' life. Now, Pilate wasn't exactly buying it. And that's why he asked, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Mark doesn't account for this. But in John chapter 18, verses 33 to 37, we get a fuller account of the interview that Jesus has with Pilate. And then ultimately, after Pilate asks some questions to Jesus, Jesus says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not of this world. And after that conversation, Pilate is convinced that Jesus is absolutely no threat to the Roman Empire whatsoever. And so he brings Jesus out to the crowd again. And he announces to the crowd, I find no fault in this man. That leads us to verse 3. The chief priests accused him of many things. A flood of vicious charges and accusations about Jesus rolling in one after the other. He stirs up the people. He's a troublemaker. He's a liar. He's an insurrectionist. Anything that they could say about Jesus that would win some sort of approval with Pilate to go ahead and persecute and then to execute Jesus, they were going to go for. This had to be excruciatingly difficult for Jesus to take. You know, to be accused of something that you've done is one thing. But to be viciously maligned and slandered and vilified in public with accusations that are based on nothing but lies and innuendo is just plain, it's just plain wrong. I mean, think about it. Have you ever been falsely accused of a crime or a sin that you did not commit? Have you ever had people piling on with slander and criticism and gossip When they didn't know the full truth. And they don't know exactly what you said or what you did. I have. Let me tell you. I did something about it. I came to my own defense during that time. I confronted the man who was saying these things about me. And I set the record straight. I felt so betrayed I could not even sleep at night. And I had to go make things right. But what does Jesus do? He does not do that. Verse 3 says, he answered nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, do you answer nothing? Look at all these things that they're saying about you. And verse 5 then says, he answered nothing. Jesus is being falsely accused, but he will not open his mouth. Why not? Because he is a man who is on a mission. He is a man who is on a mission and he will not be diverted from his mission. He will not go away from his mission. He endured false accusation. What else did he endure? Look at verses 6 through 14. He endured seething hatred. Seething hatred. As was Pilate's custom, he released one prisoner at the crowd's request every year at the Passover feast. This was a peacekeeping gesture of Pilate so that he could keep the peace and have an ongoing relationship with these Jews in Jerusalem. And so they have a choice. They have a choice between Barabbas, a a thieving, murdering insurrectionist, and Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Now, if you look at the text, he makes it clear that he wants to release Jesus. What does he say? He says, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He doesn't say, who do you want me to release? Which one? He says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Because to Pilate, this charge against Jesus is absolutely bogus. It's ridiculous. And so he figures the mixed crowd... Take take away the Jewish leaders and just get in the mixed crowd among Gentiles and Jews and so forth. And probably people are going to say, release to us Jesus. And look at verse 12. This is interesting. Once the crowd has actually chosen to release uh, Barabbas, Pilate then asked, what do you want me to do with him you call the king of the Jews? Now get this. His question implies that he's also willing not only to release Barabbas, but to release Jesus too. In other words, he's saying, what do you guys want me to do with this fellow you're calling king of the Jews? He's your king. Surely you don't want a Roman ruler like myself to condemn the very one whom you've called king. Guess again, Pilate. Guess again, Pilate. They hated him. And so they all cried out in unison. Crucify him. Crucify him. Jesus had healed their sick. He had fed their hungry. He had restored their the sight to their blind. He had cast out demons. He had raised their dead to life again. He had preached with authority. And He had changed the lives of thousands of people. And yet there is no love for Jesus at this point. Only hatred. What did Jesus do when they cried out, Crucify Him? He did nothing. He just took it. Surely the betrayal, the jeers, the lack of gratitude of the people were enough to tempt him to stand up and say, I am the king of the Jews. But he didn't do that. Why didn't he do that? He was a man on a mission. He endured false accusations and seething hatred from people whom he loved Because he was a man on a mission. Look at verse 15. He endured brutal punishment. Notice the phrase, after he had scourged him. Pilate actually scourged Jesus prior to the crowd's command to crucify him. That's what you need to know. If you compare the Gospels, you'll find that to be the case. He was trying to save Jesus' life. Okay, He's trying, he's trying to save Jesus' life by scourging Jesus. And then after they see how bad he has been beaten, how much his body has been thrashed, bringing him out back to the crowd, he's, he's hoping that the crowd will say, okay, he's suffered enough, let him go. That doesn't happen. What is scourging? William Edwards, medical doctor, writes about the Roman scourging in an article that he wrote called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. He says this, Scourging was a legal preliminary to every Roman execution. The usual instrument was a short whip with several single or braided leather thongs of variable lengths in which small iron balls and sharp pieces of sheep bones were tied at intervals. And occasionally strips of wood or iron plates were also used. And for scourging, the man was stripped of his clothing. And his hands were tied to an upright post. The back, the buttocks, and the legs were beaten either by two soldiers or by one soldier alternating positions so that he could scrape each side of the back. 
The severity of the scourging depended on the disposition of the Roman officer and was intended to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. Now, you and I oftentimes equate the scourging with, we call it the 40 lashes minus one. That's not the Roman form of scourging. That would be the Jewish custom of scourging. You see, the Roman centurion who was in charge of whoever it is that they are um, uh, scourging, it is at his will, it is at his whim how much he wants to beat a particular individual. And no doubt at this point, Jesus of Nazareth is being beaten to a pulp. But at any moment, he could have resisted. He is, after all, God. At any moment, he could have struck the Roman soldiers down, just like he did with them in, uh, in the garden when they came for him with Judas, as they all fell back. And at any moment, he could have stood up and he could have said, enough. But he didn't do that. He received the beating. He received the brutal punishment. Why? Because he was a man on a mission There was work that had to be accomplished. And if he resisted, it never would be accomplished. He endured false accusation. He endured seething hatred. He endured brutal punishment. What else? He endured public scoffing. Look at verses 16 to 24. After the scourging, the soldiers led Jesus into the hall. It was just an open courtyard that was huge. It would fit many, many, many people. It was by Pilate's official residence in in Jerusalem. The whole garrison, it says, this is approximately 600 soldiers. The whole garrison gathers in this courtyard to to observe what is going on with Jesus and to participate in the, the scoffing of Jesus. Look at verse 17. It says, they clothed him with purple. Purple was the color that was traditionally worn by the royalty. And so what they probably did is take an old cloak from a Roman soldier or something and threw it over the back of Jesus. And then they, they take a crown of thorns, the text says, and, and they embed it into his head, partially as a mocking and ridicule, but also partially to, to create great pain in Jesus. And then they mockingly salute him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews! They had put a reed in his hand as if it was a scepter. They snatched the scepter out of his hand and they began to beat him over the head with it as if they are humiliating him. We're taking your scepter, king, and we're beating you over it. You have no power as a king. You are not a king. The intensity of the sarcasm here, we cannot overstate it. The tense of the verbs that Mark actually uses here indicates that this was no quick thing. They didn't just throw a a, a robe on him. They didn't just put the thorns on him. It was all a quick thing. No, this probably lasted for well over an hour. He endured major public scoffing. They mocked him. Now, get this irony here. This This is significant irony. They mock him saying, King of the Jews! When in fact, not only is he the king of the Jews, but he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords of whom every knee one day will bow and say, Lord Jesus. But he doesn't strike back. He's a man on a mission. And so he is reserved and resolved to fulfill it. Look at verse 25. It simply says they crucified him. They crucified him. Crucifixion was one of the cruelest, most degrading forms of punishment 
ever conceived by human perversity. Josephus, a historian of 1st and 2nd century, said, Death by crucifixion was the most wretched of all ways of dying. Cicero said, Death by crucifixion is the grossest, cruelest, and most hideous manner of execution. The medical doctor who has examined the case, said although Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture. It was designed to carry out a slow and agonizing death with as much pain and as much suffering as possible. Crucifixion utilized an upright post and then a horizontal crossbar. The condemned man would carry his own cross from the scourging to the execution site outside the city walls. There was a 100-pound crossbar and about a 200-pound vertical post. So generally speaking, they would, put, they would make the, the man who was being executed just carry the 100-pound crossbar across his back after he had been scourged. And once he gets to the execution site, they then take his feet and, and, and his hands and they nail them to the cross. The, the, the nails were about five to seven inches long and they were driven through the flesh. And when this process was complete, the soldiers and the civilian crowd often taunted the victim. And then they would take, their clo- take his clothes. And then once upon the cross, the victim would begin to try to pull up to grasp for air. And he would pull down on his outstretched arms and with his shoulders... And it would put him in a state of inhalation. When you're crucified, when a person's crucified, they are in a constant state of inhalation and they have to try to squeeze up just to exhale to let their breath out. It creates slow breathing, shallow breathing, and ultimately it creates uh, choking and asphyxia. Each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and eventually it would lead to a lack of oxygen that would lead to a man's unconsciousness and then his death. Every bit of that was true for the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. The Savior endured the most ruthless execution that had ever been devised on earth at the time. And Mark simply says they crucified him. Why? Why the brevity, Mark? Why four words about the most heinous death ever conceived why the lack of explanation why not go into great detail about this physical suffering mark doesn't draw our attention to the obvious why not he draws our attention away from the obvious away from the physical suffering and on to the spiritual suffering and the abandonment of god let's look at verses 33 to 34 because he wants us to capture the true nature of Jesus' suffering. Verse 33 says, There was darkness over the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. That is from 12 o'clock noon till 3 o'clock p.m. Now this is just no coincidence here. This isn't some chance occurrence whereby the sun was hiding behind some heavy clouds and there was no lunar eclipse or solar eclipse or whatever on that day. This is none other than the supernatural hand of God showing His judgment upon the land. Verse 34 confirms it. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, 
saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Before he uttered those words, there had been a long, long silence on Calvary that day. The darkness that had poured over the city and the land that day had created an eerie feeling among the people. They did not know what was going on. And all of a sudden, out of this silence, comes this voice that yells out. It is not some murmuring. It is not some uh, quiet whisper. It is not something where Jesus is trying to hide his suffering. He, With everything in his life, with all the emotions and the despair that he feels at that moment, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's sheer emotional turmoil and utter despair at this moment. His cry symbolizes... What happens with the emotions of the psalmist in Psalm 22? If you're part of Anniston Bible Church, we looked at that in great detail on Sunday morning. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that articulates the crucifixion of Jesus to a T. Commentators say that 33 aspects of the Roman crucifixion are depicted in Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. And in Psalm 22, it begins by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The very words that uttered that Jesus utters at this moment. But it goes on to say, why will you not hear me? You are so far from the words of my groaning. I cry out by day and you won't hear me. I cry out by night and am not silent. You won't hear me. You won't listen to me. You won't answer me, God. If you walk through that psalm. What you will find is you will see that, that, that the emotional turmoil that Jesus is going through, He is saying things like, You have never done to anyone else what you're now doing to me. You have let them humiliate me. You have alienated yourself from me. You have handed me over to bloodthirsty beasts. You have condemned me to death. Look at the, I think it's verse 18 in that passage. He says, You have put me to the dust of death. The Father has abandoned the Son. The Father has forsaken the Son. The Father has left the Son all alone. And He cannot hardly bear it. But that's not all that happened to Jesus on the cross. That's not all. Not only was He forsaken and abandoned and left all alone, He was also at the very same time receiving upon Himself the aggressive, full fury of the righteous wrath of the Holy God. Now, if you couple Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With the words of Isaiah 53.10, which we've already read, which says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him. That is literally to mash him and to tear him into pieces. It goes on to say that God has put him to grief. You see, we see not only did the father abandon him at Calvary, but he also puts his weight of righteous wrath upon him. Richard Allen Bodie has said this. Nowhere in all the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness as this tortured cry from the lips of the Savior. This awesome, 
haunting protest screamed in the darkened heavens brings us to the heart of the atonement. And get this. Here is the crucifixion within the crucifixion. Oh, sure. He's being ridiculed and mocked. Sure, he is being beaten. Sure, he is being falsely accused. Sure, he is being seen as one who is a pretender and not the real thing. Sure, all these things are terrible. But nothing is so terrible than the crucifixion within the crucifixion when God Himself has placed not only His forsakenness and His abandonment, but now He has faced His wrath and His anger upon sin. R.C. Sproul says this cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. Get this. He says it is the screamed of the damned. It is the screamed of the damned for us. If our understanding of the cross is solely limited to an awareness of his physical suffering and pain, you and I don't understand the true nature of his suffering. The pain the Savior is experiencing at this moment in time is the pain and suffering of condemnation that people will feel for eternity. The Holy One of God is suffering judgment. He is experiencing the aggressive wrath of God. And at the very same time, He is being forsaken. You see, He doesn't just feel forsaken at this moment. He is forsaken. And up until this moment, He always could say, I am not alone. My Father is with me. He's all alone now. Hanging on that cross. He's all alone. Up until this point, He has not protested. He has not resisted. He has not come to his own self-defense. But at this moment, he can no longer remain silent. And he cries out, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? But just as he prayed in Gethsemane the night before, he waits for an answer. And he gets nothing but silence. No answer. What did Jesus endure? He endured suffering at the hands of men and suffering at the hand of God. We cannot stop here. We've got to answer the question, why? Why did Jesus endure that? What is the purpose of all this? And if you look at the text, you're not going to find the why in this account. And if you look at Matthew and Mark and John, you don't see in the passion of the Christ, you don't see just this why laid out. We see it through the rest of the New Testament. And for the remaining moments that we have, I want to give you five reasons why Jesus endured the cross. Five reasons He was willing to be forsaken. Five reasons He was willing to take on the wrath of God. Number one, it was to satisfy the righteous wrath of God for you and I. For you and I. 
Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul who sins shall die. You see, there is a holy curse that hangs over the world because of its sin. And because God is a just and holy God, He cannot just sweep sin under the rug. He must punish sin. Not to punish sin would not to be just. And if God is going to be God, He must punish sin. God's love would not rest, though, let me tell you. And just as as righteous and holy as God's justice is, His love would not allow His wrath to go on and on and on. Therefore, He sends His Holy Son not to, not to divert His wrath, not to just sweep it under the rug, but to absorb His wrath, to take His wrath so that you and I would not have to take it ourselves. This is the meaning of propitiation. When 1 John 4.10 says that God has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, He means that God has removed His wrath from us and put it on His own beloved Son. Jesus satisfies the righteous wrath of God for us. Second reason He goes to the cross for us is to display God's love for us. But God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The measure of God's love for sinners like you and me can be, can be shown in at least two ways. John Piper has said this. He says, the degree of sacrifice he made in saving us from the penalty of our sin shows us the measure of God's love. Jesus is in the garden and he peers into the cup of wrath that he's going to be facing the next day. And it is so bad. It is so terrible that he looks up to the father and says, father, Remove this wrath from me. Remove this cup from me. That's how bad. That is how intense. That is how terrible the suffering had to be for Jesus, for Him to appease God's wrath. And yet, God was willing to take His beloved, only, eternal Son and crush Him for it. That is God's love. And then, the second way that He shows His love is the degree of unworthiness of those of us who are saved by it. Piper says, I've heard it said that God didn't die for frogs. So he was responding to our value as humans. Piper says, this turns grace on its head. You see, we are worse off than frogs. We are worse off than dogs and cats and horses and cows. You see, they have not sinned. They have not rebelled and treated God as if He does not exist. They have not turned from God in a worship relationship and said, I'm going to go my own way. Animals aren't bad enough. We are. Our debt is great. And only a divine sacrifice could pay it. Jesus endured the cross not to display our worth, but to display the love of God for sinners who don't deserve it. The third reason that he died on the cross was not only to display the Father's love, but to display his own. To display his own love for sinners. Listen, Ephesians 5. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 
Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And I love this. Galatians 2.20 Paul says, He loved me and gave Himself up for me. This is the way you and I should understand the cross tonight. On this Good Friday service, this is how we should appropriate the cross work of Jesus Christ. The cross work of Jesus Christ is about me personally. It is my sin that cut me off from God. Not sin in general. It is my callousness, my idolatry that demean the worth of Jesus. I am lost and perishing. When it comes to salvation, I forfeited all claims on justice. And all I can do at this moment is plead for mercy. And then for you and for I, at some point, we call out. We hear the gospel. We hear what the gospel is. And our hearts are swayed. We embrace the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the cross work of Jesus Christ. And there flows into our heart at that moment the greatest reality. And that is that Jesus Christ, the eternal, sinless Son of God, has loved me and gave Himself for me. I want to ask you tonight. Have you ever had your heart warmed by the love of Jesus? Have you ever had your heart ignited by the sacrificial, selfless love that Jesus has for your soul. Seven days ago, I was out for a run in the Chakalaka management area where I was surrounded by trees and grass and wind and the sky and was having a blast. And all of a sudden, I began to contemplate the cross and that warmness, that love so compelled me, I began to weep uncontrollably. And I want to tell you, they were tears of sadness and tears of excitement at the same time. Why, were, why was I sad? Because my sin caused the cross of Christ. But why were they tears of excitement? Because He gave Himself for me. The fourth reason is that He achieves the forgiveness of sins. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And fifth, He went to the cross and He suffered what we looked at to bring us into fellowship with God. Hang with me for these final moments because, let me tell you, this is the most important aspect of the cross work of Christ. First Peter 3 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why, why Peter? Why did he do it? So that he might bring us to God. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. The best thing about the cross work of Christ is that it brings us to God Himself. We get to know God and experience God and walk with God and have a relationship with God. This is absolutely just unfathomable. One more Piper quote. 
Salvation is not good news if it only saves us from hell and not for God. Forgiveness is not good news if it only gives us relief from guilt and doesn't open the way to God. Justification is no good news unless if it only makes us legally acceptable to God, but doesn't bring us into fellowship with God. Redemption is not good news if it only liberates us from bondage, but doesn't bring us to God. Adoption is not good news if it only puts us in the Father's family, but not in His arms. We were created to love and enjoy our God. We were created to have fullness of joy at the Father's right hand, to enjoy pleasures forevermore, and to commune with Him forever. And by dying on the cross, Jesus makes the deepest, longest joy a human can possibly have possible. Fellowship with God. Let's pray.